I interview people from the wonderful world of education who interest and inspire me. But today we are going to do something a little bit different because I have got a brand new project. Now my wife goes mad at me because every six months or so I tend to start up a new website and I've gone and done it again. This one is called Tips for Teachers. So let me try and sell you on the dream. So I invite guests um, to have a conversation with me and I ask them to come up with five tips that they would share with teachers. Now these tips can be part of any um, aspect of the life of a teacher. They could be tips for planning, tips for uh, pedagogy, tips for well-being, anything that they think listeners will find useful. And I record these uh, these conversations and I put them out as podcast episodes, each of which contain the five tips. But what I also do is I record uh, the video of our conversation and I chop those videos up into five sections. So each video uh, goes through one of these tips and I put these on YouTube. And the idea is that you can consume these tips however you like. You may want to listen to the podcast um, on your commute to school or when you're doing the housework or when you're going for a walk or in the gym or whatever it is. But what you may also do is when you listen to one of these tips, you may think, well, you know what, that's one that I would like to share with colleagues, perhaps at a departmental meeting or a twilight. So that's where you can then hop onto the Tips for Teachers website and you can access the video of that tip. You can project it up on your mini whiteboard or wherever, watch it on your phone or whatever you want, and you get that visual stimulus as well. Um, In addition, I myself have recorded some kind of standalone videos, which is just me chatting to myself, which happens fairly regularly in my life. Um, And I provide lots of visual aids uh, for those things, and they're all on the site. Now, Tips for Teachers is free and will always be free. You don't need any login um, or anything like that. And the website is Tips for Teachers teachers.co.uk. So what I thought would be useful here in this um, episode of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast is I'm going to share five of my favorite tips from my first five guests. Flipping out, that's a lot of F's involved there. Um, I should say, by the way, the Mr. Barton Maths podcast will certainly continue. I'll probably be doing it a little bit less frequently uh, than I have over the last, what, five or six years. Um, But um, so the place, if if the uh, impossible happens, you get withdrawal symptoms from uh, the sound of my voice. I don't think so. But uh, the Tips for Teachers podcast is where you can continue to listen. Um, What I would ask, though, please, I'm about to uh, go through these tips that I'm going to share with you today, is please could you subscribe to the Tips for Teachers podcast? The reason is the way these um, algorithms work with Spotify and iTunes and all that kind of thing. If you don't if you don't have a lot of subscribers to these podcasts, you are rock bottom in terms of all the lists. And it means uh, that uh, new listeners just simply don't find the show. So subscribing would be amazing. And I'll tell you what, if I can just push my luck a little bit further, if you wouldn't mind, if you find uh, the episodes of the Tips for Teachers podcast useful. If you could give it a rating and a review, um, either on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from, that'd be amazing as well. The, the, uh, the algorithms, they absolutely love a rating and a review. 
Anyway, so let me give you a bit of a teaser of some of the things that you might get on the Tips for Teachers podcast, and that's what we're going to play today. So I'm going to play you uh, five clips. The first is uh, Adam Boxer, and his tip that you're going to hear is to reduce choppy time in lessons, use a front-loaded means of participation, and wait for golden silence. Woohoo, it's a good one, I'll tell you that much. Then we are going to fuse seamlessly into the wonderful Joe Morgan, whose tip that we're going to hear is don't forget the respond part of responsive teaching. Next up is Tom Sherrington, start with whoever got 8 out of 10, that's a good one. Then we have Gemma Sherwood, plan sequences, not lessons. And finally, rounding off this Taster episode, we have Harry Fletcher Wood, do less but better. Now, if you want to hear the full versions of these interviews with the guests remaining four tips, that's where you need to check out the Tips for Teachers podcast. And I'll give you a little bit of a teaser here. We have got some amazing guests coming up on the Tips for Teachers podcast. Dylan William, Sammy Kempner, Kate Jones. There's absolutely loads of people coming up. I'm going through the kind of best of of the Mr. Bart Maths podcast and a load of other people that I've connected with. So please head over to uh, Tips for Teachers, wherever you get your podcast from. I'll put links to all the common places in the show notes. And I'd, be, um, I'd just be eternally grateful if you could subscribe, review and rate and spread the word about the show. Anyway, I'll shut up. Let me hand over to my five guests, starting with Adam Boxer. Enjoy. <music> Adam, tip number three. Tip number three. To reduce choppy time in lessons, use a front-loaded means of participation and wait for golden silence. Now, there's a few buzzwords in here. So we've got (laughs) choppy time, front-loaded and golden silence. Take take us through each of these. Okay, choppy time is, is like noisy time. Yeah, when kids aren't misbehaving. Yeah, but there's noise. So, for Ah, example, when they're giving out the mini whiteboards. Yeah, if you say, yeah, so, you know, you want the mini whiteboards to be given out, you say, give out the mini whiteboards. That leads to choppy time. Got it. Now, what we saw before earlier is that that choppy time can escalate. And um, I I had a whole thing that I I used to say. It was like Yoda style. You know, Yoda's like, hate leads to suffering. Suffering leads to anger. (laughs) Anger leads to jealousy. And jealousy leads to the dark side. That kind of thing. Basically, like, noise leads to hubbub, Mm. leads to disruption leads to conflict leads yeah. to defiance nice yeah and 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 experienced teachers know that if you nip it early it ends up always being better yeah. and that little bit of hubbub and that bubble that noise that you think is okay very very quickly turns into stuff that isn't okay uh, and is uncontrollable um so if you want to like reduce that that choppy time you need to be clear with your instructions now, telling people to be clear with their instructions is not good advice. Mm. Yeah, because how do you, if I said to you, be more clear? Yeah. What, like, enunciate? Yeah, like, like what? It's like when people are little t- tell kids, like, yeah, you didn't read the question? They read the question. Yeah. yeah they read the question. No, they, 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 re- they, they need to read the question more carefully. Okay, how do you read more carefully? Yeah. What, like, you just do it slowly? Like, can you read slowly? <laughs> Reading slowly is hard, yeah, it's actually worse. So it, it's just a nonsense, yeah? So telling people they need to be clearer is rubbish, Yeah. right? So what they need to do is they need to front load their means of participation. Okay. So means, means of participation is how you want the students to do the thing. So let's say you're asking a question, you want hands up, you're saying um, hands up. 
and you're being explicit about that. If you want them to answer on a mini whiteboard, you're saying on your mini whiteboards. Okay. If you say, if you want them to do it in silence, they're going to do it in silence. If yeah. you're going to do it quietly talking to your partner, you're going to do it quietly talking to your partner, that kind of stuff. Uh, and front loading is putting that at the beginning of your instruction. Because if you say something like, um, you know, everybody write down the equation for speed, distance. Yeah. Uh, tell you what, so if you say, no, if we did mini whiteboards, it's, better, it's, it's easier. Yeah? If you say, okay, I want everyone to get the mini whiteboards, uh, but I want you to do it quietly. By the time I get to the, but I want you to do yeah. it quietly, they've started yeah. getting the mini whiteboards and they're noisy. Yes. Yeah, and you've lost it because they're not listening to you anymore. They're focused on the mini whiteboards and then noise, hubbub, disruption, chaos, pandemonium, nuclear, thermonuclear war, right? Um, all of those. I can you imagine just... the, the silence one's a big one as well, right? If you don't yeah, exactly. load it with the silence, they're already exactly to the person next. So you yeah. say things like, "Okay, guys, we're going to do this next bit in complete silence. That's good. Nobody's going to talk. Quietly, grab your mini whiteboards. Nice. And then key, wait. And wait. That one of the most important ingredients to an instruction is the wait afterwards. Because what I see a lot is people start their instruction, then they take a question from a kid over here, they take a question from a kid over there, and then they start talking to someone at the back, and then they start repeating their instruction or whatever. And before you know it, that hubbub is like off the charts. You've got some kids working, some kids chatting, then a teacher starts circulating, talking to this kid, that kid. Yeah, it's all about that wait. Right, it's about making sure that everyone is on the same page. So, so you're doing the mini whiteboards. We're going to do that talking completely quietly. Everyone's going to get their mini whiteboards. And then, if a kid says, "Oh, sorry, I don't have my pen," and you start walking over and you give him pen. Anyone else not got a pen? Go over there. Go over there. Before you know it, kids are talking. Yeah. Because why yeah, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah. Okay. So we modify the instruction again. We say, "Okay, we're going to we're going to do this completely without talking." If you find you don't have a pen, and again, I'm not even saying them to get the mini whiteboards yet. I'm waiting for that to the end, yeah? yeah? If you find you don't have a pen, you just raise your hands. I don't want to hear any noise. I don't want to hear you calling out or speaking to anybody about your pen. You just pop your hand in the air. Uh, what are we going to do if we don't have a pen? David? Very good. You're going to put, uh, wait, are you going to call out to me that you don't have a pen? No, no, no. Just perfect. Well done. It's just going to go up in the air nice and quiet. Excellent. Okay, eyes back up here. That way, that way. Good. Lovely. Right. Um, very, very quietly. And if we don't have a pen, our hand's going to go up. We're just going to grab our mini whiteboards. Go now. And then I wait. Kids put their hand up. I'm still waiting. I go like this. Give them a thumbs up. I go, or I sign, wait. Yeah, Makaton sign for wait. That's that one. I like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny because like, I spend a lot of time in Israel. In Israel, everyone signs wait like this. You put like oh. two hands in. You go like this. Like this. It's like a really common sign. It means wait. Jeez. And um, I, always, I keep doing this to the kids. They're like, <laughs> look at me like I'm completely mad. I'm like, hey. <laughs> yeah because the second you start to introduce that noise it all flips up yeah, yeah. um and there's this hubbub noise chaos etc um so yeah it's about that weight and then once everyone's got their mini whiteboards and those kids have got their pen up you just quietly call one kid towards you give them a box and you just say go take a pen to everyone with their hand up yeah okay right eyes up here guys lovely and then you can ask your question you know and that just like if you apply that to every single occasion where you give instructions, yeah, let's say the kids are about to practice, okay? Okay, so you've just done your check for understanding, you say, okay, um, eyes up here, please. Oh, uh, here's a really good one, yeah? When the kids put their one mini whiteboard up to show you their answer, yeah? You have a look, you say, have a look, you go, okay, I don't want anyone to rub off their answer, put it down. Now, why does that work? It works because if you say put it down, some of them start yeah, rubbing off, of others of them aren't rubbing yeah. off. You yeah. start talking, some of the kids are listening to you, some of the kids aren't yeah. listening to you. You want them to look at their work, but they don't have their work. So you say, okay, um, who wrote, someone wrote 24, who was it that wrote 24? And, and a kid was like, oh, I think it was me. Gone. Mm. Lost it. You yeah. lost the magic. 
right? So you make sure you say, don't rub it off, put it down. And they oh, don't rub nice. it off and they put it down. And then you talk through the answers and you say, okay, guys, I want you now to quietly rub it off. Lovely. Next question. Smooth, clean, clear, crisp every time. Kids are about to start practicing. You say, okay, guys, um, eyes up here, please. We've all finished with our mini whiteboards. Lovely. Eyes up here. Okay. Um, I want everyone quietly to turn in their exercise book, please, to the clean page. Okay, really good. I want everyone to get their booklet. Turn to page 14, please. Lovely. Question six. Don't need to write out the question. Quietly, by yourself, answer question six to 14. And even then I messed up, so I said question six first. I shouldn't have done that. I should have started by saying, we're not gonna write full sentences. We're not gonna write the question quietly by ourselves. I want you to answer from question six to 14. Compare that, say, to we've now finished with the mini whiteboards. Okay, everyone, get your books and start question six to 14. Yeah. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, some kids are squirreling, looking for their yeah. book, whatever, and then they're like, which question was it? Which yeah. question? Yeah. Chaos, noise, hubbub, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's good. Give me, give me the, give me the, so I've got the, the lingo right here, Adam. Give me that tip one more time. Tell me, tell me those. Oh, wait, I haven't finished phrases. the golden silence oh. bit yet. Oh, yeah, go, yeah, go, go. Okay. So a quiet class, mm. yeah, is not necessarily a class that you can disturb with noise. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the example that I like to use is the register. Yeah. So let's say your kids come in, there's work for them to do on the board in silence. Yeah. Yeah. And they've just got quiet and they're, and they're starting the work. If you call yeah. the register that, then bad call. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the I, I don't 100% have a good theory to fully explain this yet. But what I think is that people get engrossed in a task. And when they first start a task, they're not engrossed in it. And any noise will like disturb them mm. like this or that or whatever. Mm. And if a kid like says they don't have a book or whatever, and you start having a conversation with that kid, you, you add to the noise, noise, yeah. hubbub, etc. But once kids are like focused and in the task, when you then put a bit of noise in, it's okay, it works. Interesting. That point isn't the point at which silence is reached. That's, you know, a minute after. And I call that golden silence. Ah. Yeah, it's the point in time at which they are engrossed in their work. And you can interrupt it just a little bit with a little bit of noise, i.e. a register or talking to a kid or whatever, and you don't flick that noise up. Uh, some classes, by the way, will never reach golden silence. Yeah, and you need to keep a lid on them the whole, whole time. Yeah. And classes like that, for example, if you ever, you know, if a kid puts their hand up to ask a question, you start having a question with them across the room, it's disaster. Yeah. Yeah? You never, ever do that. I mean, you should never do it anyway. But with some classes, it's worse than others. Most classes will reach a point of golden silence, at which point you can, like, interrupt it a bit by going to talk to one kid, taking your eye off yeah. this kid, you know, going to do a little bit of circulation over here or there, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, if you go too early, you kill it. That's interesting. You know what? That, that answers a problem I've had for many years. And that's, I always used to get in trouble for taking the register too late. Like if it's not done within the first five minutes of the lesson, some illegal things happened or something I used to get told regularly. Yeah. Yeah. But the well, things, alarm bells the, go off in Whitehall. Yeah, that's exactly. But like taking the register whilst they're trying to get on with the do now or something, it's just a disaster waiting to happen because, and now having heard you describe it, it's because they're not in that kind of deep focus state where anything from me is distracting them left, right and centre. So the perfect time to do the register would maybe like 20 minutes into the lesson whilst, whilst they're practising away, but sometimes you just can't do that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's one of those where like, where like once you've had a bit of experience in the classroom, it like... You're like, oh, right, obviously. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, things like, let's say a kid trips on a chair. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's say kids are quiet and working, right? Yeah. Imagine two scenarios. Yeah, yeah. The same class. Yeah. They're both quiet. They're both working. A kid is moving to the bin to put some pencil shavings or whatever and yep. trips a bit on a chair. In both classes. Mm. In one class, everyone starts to turn around, hey, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the other class, which is the same kids, people don't even clock. That's because the second class has hit golden silence mm. and the first class hasn't. Yeah, and, and that's like, it's like a magic moment when you know that you're in the clear. Yes. Right, and if people tell you to break it before then, they're wrong. That's interesting. I like that. Right. So I'm going to ask you again. Give give me the give me the three key phrases there. Right. right. So we it. had to reduce choppy time, which is that like noisy, yep. bustling bit. Yeah. Yep. Front loaded is about yep. putting it at the beginning. Means participation is how you want them to participate. Yeah. Um, and uh, so like quietly or in your books or whatever. And then golden silence is the point at which you could disturb things a little bit and there won't be chaos. And in terms of phrases that I've borrowed, so means participation I've stolen from Doug Lamov. Uh, choppy time isn't a real phrase it's just like noise like or whatever time. and then uh, front loaded and golden silence i made up myself hey there you go <laughs> love it love it <laughs>don't forget the respond part of responsive teaching. Oh, catchy. That's the kind of clickbait headline I'm looking for there. That's good. Right, go on, tell me about this. Right, well, what used to be called assessment for learning and now more commonly called responsive teaching, it comes up a lot in lesson observations. So quite mm. often when you're observed, or if I go and observe someone, one of the things that often people are writing on these lesson observation forms is, um, could be more AFL, how are you assessing what the students know? So, But when we're talking about that, we're often talking about how the assessment takes place. Yes. So we might be talking about, are you using mini whiteboards? Are you using questioning effectively? Are you using, I don't know, exit tickets or diagnostic questions? You know, if they've got iPads, you get them to do some diagnostic questions at the end before they leave. Um, or are you circulating and looking over their shoulders? So there's all these different techniques for assessing. But I tend to find that when people are giving feedback on their, um, on their lessons, the focus is on, did you do the assessment rather than yes. how did you respond to the assessment that you did? And that's the hard bit. And that's the bit that actually I think a lot of people um, aren't, 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 don't know how to do. So when you see them get something wrong, how do you then on the fly adapt your lesson or adapt your next lesson to respond to it? Um, and I just, I, I don't think it's happening. I don't think it's people who are adapting their lessons as, as they should do for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's you have to be able to think on your feet and think very quickly. Um, if you're gonna, if you see a big misconception in a lesson, or you see that you've explained something and no one's got a clue what you're talking about, you have to think very quickly to think. You know, is there a, what's the other way I can explain it? What what different examples can I use? Um, how should I, you know, how should I respond to the fact that half the class have got it and half the class have no idea? Like, so that's that's sort of in the lesson. But the other thing is, there's this kind of fashion at the moment for we're all talking about how why are we all built writing our own lessons why aren't we using centrally planned lessons and there's like quite a thing at the moment and I've heard um I went to a talk recently with the um uh NECTM 
where they were saying, you know, what, how, how, how silly that all these teachers plan their own lessons on their own. What a terrible use of time. And there are parts of that argument I strongly agree with. But also, mm. if we're going to use a centrally planned bank of lessons where a whole unit of uh, teaching has been planned in advance, lesson by lesson, um, that doesn't really give us the opportunity to respond to our students. Um, yes. And I, I tweeted about this recently, about how I did a lesson on scattergraphs with Year 8. And I've got a pretty, I've got um, a pretty smart class of year eights. They're really good. Um, they, they, um, I can rely on them to, to be good at whatever I give them. Yeah, they're a good class. Um, and they had done scattergraphs in science. Um, and I knew they'd done scattergraphs in science because I had asked them in advance. And also I had checked the, with the science teachers. And yet when I, so I, because I was short on time, because maths teachers are always short on time, like I had, I was rushing topics because I spent a long time going to depth on one topic and it left me very little time for scattergraphs. I thought I'm going to do it in two lessons. I'm going to do one correlation and I'll do one line of best fit because I've done it before. And of course what happened was in that very first lesson, they got the correlation thing, no problem. And then I gave them a task well, I wasn't really testing their knowledge of correlation because the task said plot a scattergraph and then write down what the correlation is. So really mm. the task was testing whether they can plot a scattergraph primarily and they just couldn't. Like their scales were out of control, yeah. crazy, awful, awful stuff. Like they had no clue how to draw a graph, uh, an axis. And the thing is that I hadn't taught them that, I hadn't modelled it. So immediately I thought, well, that was that that was a that's my mistake. I should never, I should have assessed up front or I should have, yeah. I should have checked before I got started, whether they could do this particular skill, because basically I've just made a mess of this. So what I did was, was I scrapped my next lesson plan, which I was going to do line of best fit. I hadn't planned it yet though, because I don't plan lessons a long way in advance, because I know that that's a silly thing to do. So that's fine, I hadn't planned it. So I then went um, that evening and I planned the next day's lesson where I got, I taught them about scale and we looked at some scales with mistakes and we talked about why those scales were wrong and we talked about how to draw axes and we practiced that and then by the end of that lesson they were doing axes and scatter graphs much better so i fixed the problem um because i was responsive to what i saw in the lesson now if i was teaching a very regimented pre-planned series of lessons mm. that i wouldn't have been able to do that unless of course i had um um i i was you kind of allowed i guess in some schools they might say yes we have these lessons that you have to use but you are allowed to adapt and veer off them if you want to so i suppose that would have been all right but you know i think i feel like i have to defend myself in the school um, as a sometimes as a member of a leadership team, I get uh, by the other members of the leadership team. I get told off for why you plan why you plan your lessons in the evening, um, and I or why you plan your lessons in the afternoon. You've got other things that are more important to do. Um, why aren't you just using other people's lessons? Why aren't you sharing lessons in the department? Um, now we do share stuff. You know, I save my stuff in the shared area. Other people are welcome to use it. Um, but the reason I'm planning my lessons the night before is because we have maths uh, four days a week. Um, so I'm not like other subjects where I have a nice three day gap between lessons um, and I have to respond to what I saw that day. Like I can't, you can't just ignore what you saw in, in today's lesson and just carry on regardless. You have to respond to it. Um, so yeah, there, and there's, I mean, there, there are other examples where you don't have to, it's not about changing the next lesson. So for example, this week I was doing a lesson on transformations with year 10. And they were doing some practice on invariance. The whole lesson was about invariance. And then there was one question they got to on negative, which they had to do a negative enlargement and write about which points were invariant. And like I had one hand went up. First person that got to that question, I can't remember how to do a negative enlargement. They did it in year nine. And then another hand went up. And by the time the third hand went up, I stopped them all. 
And I said, I'm just going to model a negative enlargement question because I can see that everyone's forgotten how to do this. Now, I don't like to interrupt people when they're working on a task, but you know that required me to adapt my lesson during the lesson because I was responding to what I saw. Um, so basically, there's a couple of things here. One, I do see massively the advantages of off-the-shelf uh, units of lessons that are planned in advance. I definitely see the advantages to teachers that need support and to, um, to, to say to for efficiency. But we have to make sure that if we're doing that, that we are still allowing our teachers to be responsive to what they see in front of them and adapt those lessons massively if they need to, um, because being responsive is the right thing for our students. High quality lessons are important for our students, but being responsive is part of that high quality teaching and you lose the being responsive if you've planned the whole thing in advance. Um, and then the other part of that is, um, learning techniques to be responsive in the lesson and knowing when it's the right time to say that I've got this plan and I was hoping to get to this point in this hour but actually halfway through I've realised that I'm going to have to scrap the second half of the lesson and divert because of what I'm seeing in front of me. I think teachers have got really good at the assessment part of responsive teaching but we need to do more work on the responsive part of responsive teaching. Lovely that Joe. right just a few things about this. I think um there are kind of three kind of times in a lesson where I would do kind of what I call kind of formal formative assessment. And I think the first one's probably the key, that prereq knowledge check. Yeah. If you, if I spoke about with Adam Boxer about this. If you get that bit right, you, you just save yourself a load of potential hassle going forward. And I think if any, if teachers are going to be responsive anywhere, that's possibly the easiest part to be responsive because you ask this question, the prereq knowledge isn't there, so you don't really have a choice. You have to stop and teach that that prerequisite knowledge. I think it gets a bit more difficult when you start doing formative assessment midway through a lesson, when perhaps the kids are practicing a new concept that you've taught them. It's quite tempting just to kind of let them kind of crack on with it and keep practicing, but then if you, if you stop them there and just do a bit of a, a sense check of where all the class are, either with diagnostic questions or mini whiteboards or whatever it's then sometimes quite difficult to respond there because sometimes it's all right the rest of you crack on with this whereas the ones who are struggling just watch me at the board or kind of come around in a small group but it's so it's so important yeah. to do and then that final part as you say whether it's an exit ticket or a final question at the end that's quite nice because then as you say you then have a bit of time before the next lesson to think and it might not be scrapping the whole lesson it might be saying right for the first 10 minutes I'm just going to need to go back over this and, and so on and so forth. Um, second thing, was, I, I've definitely been there with this. Certainly when I was much less experienced, your lesson plan, it's almost like it's set in stone. So you're going to, I'm going to use this slide, then I'm going to use this slide and so on and so forth. I'd never put the two and two together though, Joe, to start thinking about the pre-prepared resources, which are really high quality may actually cause teachers to be less responsive. It's a really interesting thing that, and it goes back to that story I was talking about previously where this guy was clicking through the PowerPoints. There was no way he was gonna do anything apart from click next slide. There was no way he was gonna be able to respond because then what was he gonna do? He's gonna to have to close his PowerPoint down, get up on the other, it just wasn't gonna happen. So that's really interesting that I'm a big proponent of these shared resources for workload and also kind of lesson sequencing reasons. But yeah, I'd never put two and two together. That's really nice, that Joe. I, li I like that. And my final thing, and I'm obviously ridiculously biased, but I think diagnostic questions are quite good for responsive teaching for two reasons. So, well, three reasons. So one, they're very quick to kind of ask and get the whole kids. You get a response off all the kids, whether it's A, B, C, D cards or mini wipers or whatever. Two, if the kids get it wrong, 
you have a sense of why they're getting it wrong because of their choice of wrong answer. So each wrong answer will give you an insight into the specific nature of their misunderstanding. So you can then, then you've got, if you've looked at the question in advance and you think, okay, loads of my kids are getting, are going for A, A is wrong and I know why because I've looked at the question before, you're then probably in a better position to have a good explanation or a demonstration or whatever. But finally, I think the most challenging thing about responding in responsive teaching, as you've said, is, is, is what, how you actually respond. If you've got half your kids who've, who know what they're doing and half your kids who don't, that's potentially difficult. But with diagnostic questions, what I tend to do is the kids who don't know what they're doing, I've got an insight as to why, so I can support them. But the kids who do know what they're doing, I can simply say something like, or one of my favorite things to say to the kids is, for a diagnostic question, can you write me three more diag three more questions which would make each of the wrong answers right? So I can give this like, okay, we, we know D's the right answer to this question. Whilst I'm helping out the rest of the class, can you write me a question as similar to the one that you that we've just seen here? So just change one thing, but make A the right answer. Then change one thing and make B the right answer. And that means that I don't have to give out another worksheet, another activity or anything like that. They can be busy in a useful way whilst I can help the other kids out. Because to take your right at the point you made right at the start, the reason I think teachers struggle with the responsive bit of responsive teaching is that's that is the hard bit. Yeah. That's the hard bit. And it's 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 a lot easier when all the kids either know it or all the kids don't know it. But when you have this split, it's quite difficult to respond. So that's some of the kind of things that that I would do. Did you have any thoughts if you get that position, Joe, where you have a bit of a split in the class of knowledge? It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, you're right, because you've got this thing where if the whole class is uses at something, then you either change that lesson or you change the next lesson yeah. and you just yeah. have to teach that thing they all can't do. But yeah, it's it, it, and if it's one or two students, then that's easier because you can just go yeah. to them directly. But you're right, if you've got half this class getting it and half the class not, that is, that is really challenging. So like you say, you need to find something... Um, find something that's going to get the ones who get it doing some reasoning while you're still um, yeah. explaining or adapting your explanation for the ones who don't get it. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's about adapting your explanation. Like if you've shown them, like if you've shown them a way of doing it, if you've, if you've modeled a number of examples and they're still not getting it, you need to model them differently or you need to find a different explanation or you need to find a, um, a different method um, and yeah. and so it takes a it takes quite a lot of experience and expertise to get it right um, it's definitely the, definitely the hardest bit of teaching um, Absolutely. and um, and it's interesting isn't it because you think about in other subjects and how you know you could have where they want students to write a paragraph um, and and you know like they're going around seeing that some students are writing these amazing paragraphs and some students are just writing load of nonsense um, and I can imagine it's it's just as hard there to sort of decide, you know, without if there's too many students to help individually, then what are you going to do then? And you really need to minimise the amount of times you stop a class and interrupt them, particularly for those who are getting on with it. Like it's really hard if there's some who are just happily working away to say, right, everyone, I can see some of you aren't getting this. So well, pens down and all eyes back on me because that's really frustrating for those who are fine with it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have all the answers on the best way of doing it, but I do know that I'm really worried about, um, I really worry about these, uh, this big trend at the moment for, uh, collaboration is a really good thing and we should be collaborating mm -hmm. and we should be being efficient, but these off the shelf lessons, they have to be, they have to be used with caution and they has yeah. to be really strongly emphasized that if you're using a, essentially, I'll say one teaching department's gonna plan all the angles lessons, I can see the advantages, but it also means that if you're delivering um, a series of lessons that someone else has taught, 
um, you need to have the confidence to not use that lesson halfway through the lesson if um, if your class depending on what your class say because otherwise all the assessment for learning is just a waste of time if you're just you know if you're getting them to do stuff on many whiteboards or you're circulating or you're questioning um, and and then you're saying oh they haven't quite got this but I need to click on to the next slide then they might as well not have done it um, so yeah I do think it's really really tough um, I'll tell you one more example. I use my, um, so my year nines this year, they've done, they've got a, a, a cast of year nines who struggle with maths and they did a, a grid method last year for expanding double brackets. And early this year, I gave them a end of unit test on some topic and I included some retrieval questions in that. And I could see that uh, three quarters of the class got the double bracket expansion wrong. They've been taught the grid method last year. They made all the common misconceptions you get with that method, um, particularly that filling in the last box with by adding the numbers like that's really really common um so then i responsive the responsive teaching for me there from seeing that one test question that they all got wrong was uh, a couple of months later when i did have the opportunity to do some algebra because algebra came up on the scheme of work um i tried showing them a different method so i said look you all know how you all taught how to do the grid method i know that some of you have not remembered how to do the grid method i'm going to show you a different way of doing it and i used the distributive method so um which was modeled very well by chris bolton at a recent mass conference and i used his series of um examples to model it and 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 it worked really well and at the end of that series of lessons i did on that i said right so in year eight you were taught the grid method for expanding brackets i've taught you a different method uh, which basically just requires expertise in single brackets to be successful in, which was really good for them because they had the expertise in single brackets. And I said, and I'll let you decide going forward which method you're going to use for this topic. Um, but yeah, I if I hadn't um, if I hadn't spotted that a lot of the class had um, not coped well with the method they've been taught in year eight, um, then I wouldn't have adapted my lessons um, for year nine. So I do think this responsive teaching thing it can be short term, like in the lesson, or it can be kind of um, one lesson to the other, or it can even be like over a long period of time, um, looking at uh, how they did in end of year assessment or how they do in an end of unit test, and then thinking about how you're gonna do things differently next time. So there's a whole load of responsive teaching that we all need to be thinking about. And I think it's a massively important part of what we do. And um, and yeah, I think sometimes, like I say, in lesson observations, the emphasis is on how are you assessing, not how are you responding. So yeah, we do need to, uh, I think uh, as a profession, we need to get better at thinking about uh, the best ways to respond. Okay, what about tip number three? Okay, this is <laughs> this is a really top tip for creating a culture of error and normalizing being wrong and flushing out error so it's it's called start with whoever got eight out of ten so it doesn't have to be eight out of ten exactly because it doesn't matter how many questions but it's the idea that if you've given a quiz with ten possible answers ten questions and then you've gone through the answers you don't start by saying who got them all right because if you do that um, none of them are wrong so there's nothing to talk about and also everyone else who didn't get them all right is feeling a little bit oh okay i better not so many people got them all right. So if you say, right, so who got eight out of 10? Michael, how did you get on? He's, he's, he's put his hand up. You say, brilliant, well done. So which ones did you get wrong? And you go straight in with that. And he's quite happy to say, oh, I didn't get number seven. All right, so why, why, what happened? What did you put? Oh, do you, what, tell me what you think the answer is now then. Yeah, okay, yeah, great, well done. And can you explain it back? Brilliant. And what else did you get wrong? Number 10, okay. That's good. And did who else got eight out of 10? 
Susan. Okay, all right, so the same. Okay, what else? Brilliant. So that's another one. Did anyone else get one wrong then? And we've got people go me, 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 because it's become normalized. And they're all, and the eight out of teners are happy to tell you they got them wrong. And then you can you go through a few wrong answers. It's the what you're trying to do anyway. And then you say, and who got, did anyone get them all right? Oh, well done, guys. That's brilliant. And then that's at the end because you still give them that affirmation. But it's not the, it, it, it's, it's, it's an easiest way of students feeling safe to tell that you got answers wrong. And I just think that works so well. And the, if you don't have a culture where children can say stuff they got wrong, they hide it. And they can make it really hard for you to find out. And you don't want to hide it. You want them to tell you. And that that's, and it's, it's just a, a, you know, just one of the things I found works really well. That's it's so lovely that time. Because again, I was just thinking back to the errors I've made with this. So I've, I've done it both ways around. So if it's a, a quiz out of 10, I've either said, right, let's start at the bottom. Anyone get zero out of 10? Anyone get one out of 10? Anyone get... And that's a disaster waiting to happen because no one wants to be the first kid to put their hand up. But then, yeah, if you do it the other way around and you start at the top, again, once those first initial hands have gone up, you're feeling pretty rubbish if, if, if you haven't had a chance yeah. to put your hand up yet and you're waiting for it to slide down to your level. So I love that. And I love the fact that it it draws out those initial mistakes kids have made. And then it, it becomes, yeah, like you say, normalizes the exact phrase. I, I love that. That's really nice. Uh, re really nice that. is to plan sequences not lessons oh i like it right tell me more about this okay so um i probably started doing some kind of version of this maybe about seven or eight years ago now um and it absolutely revolutionized the way i thought about teaching because it changed the focus um, and for me before my focus around what i did was governed by the time frame that i had and in some schools it would be 50 minutes and in some schools it would be an hour and my thought would be, I have a fixed amount of time. What are we going to do in that time? What do I want to cover in that time? And the time was kind of the main driver of everything else. It was kind of the, the overarching constraint. So when I changed to doing this process, it kind of flips it on its head because what I do now is I think, I need to teach certain things, certain ideas, certain concepts. I want my pupils to have certain types of practice. I want them to become fluent in things. I want them to be exposed to thinking in different ways about lots of things to do with maths. And now I structure what I do by thinking about that first. And I, I essentially, for a kind of a unit of learning, I have one massive long flip chart or PowerPoint and I just go through it but I mean that sounds like I'm kind of slavishly following it that's not the case what it means is I know key things that I want to do at certain times and if those things happen to go across the kind of now what I see is an artificial boundary of one lesson to the next then fine so I have no problem in something kind of being finished in the middle of a lesson and then we pick it up the next lesson because it's more important to me that pupils are exposed to certain activities certain tasks certain ways of thinking certain lines of questioning and the time frames that we have for our lessons are, are they just have to kind of be subservient to that really got it right the questions begin here, Gemma, because I've loads to ask you about this. So practically speaking, you're talking a big old PowerPoint here. So just give, give us a sense for like a two-week unit of work or something. How many slides might we be talking here? Probably about 70 to 80. Whoa. And what kind of things are on there? Like um, <laughs> examples you're so, going to ask? Is everything on there? 
Well, okay, so yeah, um, this is, this part. Let me go back a little bit. This is partly because what I'm doing at the moment is I'm making resources that lots of teachers can use of varying levels of experience. Uh, yes. So some teachers who are non-specialist teaching maths will use these. Some of them are very very experienced. So I'm trying to put all sorts in there um, so that teachers can can or cannot or can choose to use or not use things depending on how confident they feel with the material. Um, so in, when I'm saying 70 or 80 slides, this includes loads of diagnostic questions in, at, at certain points and hinge questions and all that kind of thing. It includes um, ways of explaining things. It includes example problem pairs. It also includes the activities that I want the pupils to do in case the teachers don't have um, a, the capacity to do lots of printing. So it's, it's basically everything across, you know, two weeks across 70 or 80 slides. Nice. And what tends to be the first slide that you write there? What's what's the first thing that you put down? Um, oh, that's a very good question. I think that depend, depends on the content. So I wrote one recently for the very start of year seven, which is a unit on place value. And we started with a bit of the history of number and the history of the number system and how we write and that kind of thing. Um, that whereas a recent one I've done on the introduction to algebra, there, what did that begin with? I've only just finished writing it. That began with um, a, a kind of a, uh, do you know, I've completely forgotten now. I'm not even going to try and pretend to. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm interested um, in. But it might be, ah, oh, no, I remember what oh, it God. started with. It started with a discussion question, which was prompting the pupils to think about, um, basically I had a set of, of examples um, of the form, like two times three plus eight times three. And uh, two times six plus eight times six, where it was all two lots of number plus eight lots of a number. Yes. And I wanted them to discuss these and say what they all had in common, looking at the fact that they all represented 10 lots of a number. And then nice. we kind of go into drawing that as an area model and then thinking about 2n plus 8n is 10n and all those kinds of things. So it started with a discussion question. And is the first thing that you... So that's obviously how your sequence of lessons would start. So is that the first thing you write as well when you're putting together this PowerPoint? Do you start your writing where your lessons would start? Or do you have like an end question in mind that you want the kids to get to and perhaps that's the first thing you bang down in your PowerPoint, if that makes sense. These days, I start by thinking about um, the kind of the broad route I want to take through what we're trying to learn first. So let me stick with this algebra one, for instance. I wanted to start with this idea of the structure. Tony Garner calls it the uh, structure of arithmetic or structural arithmetic. So I wanted to start with that. Um, and then I wanted to look at how we use that to write. It's kind of to motivate writing expressions as a generalization of um, numerical patterns. Um, and then I wanted to move on to a bit more work in expressions in more depth. And we, we're using algebra tiles and what we're making. So linking into explaining this variable X tile, which is a new thing to them. Um, and then I wanted to move on to substitution as like a specific instance. So, so if you imagine the X tile kind of varies, we can kind of fix it at a particular number and work out what the value of the expression would be there. And what happens if we then fix it at a different number? What's the value of the expression then? So that was substitution. Then I wanted to move on to solving an equation, which is where imagine this tile is moving and then all of a sudden we fix it there and we know that the value of the expression is nine. That gives us our equation. Now we can work backwards and find what the value of the tile is. So it's all in, it's just an introduction to algebra, very kind of informal, but um, I start with that overview of where I want it to go. And then I go a bit into a bit more detail into each section and think about um, what, I, what do I think would be the best way to explain this? How can I link it to what the pupils already know so that it doesn't seem to just kind of poof appear out of the thin air? Um, and then what kinds of tasks and activities will we do to focus attention in the right places? Got it. Fantastic. So it kind of starts as an overview and then drills on down into each of the sections. 
And then as I go through, sometimes I go, oh, actually, I'm going to switch that around now. But that kind of happens as you go along. That's great. Now, this this has been a big change for me because maybe similar to you, Gemma, for many, many years, I planned on a very kind of lesson by lesson basis. But I think to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, there are a few potential pros of doing it lesson by lesson. So I'm interested in your take on this. So I guess you could make the argument that maybe you're a little, you could fall into the trap of being a little less responsive if you've got everything planned out. So let's say, well, what happens in this case? You do your lesson on algebra and it doesn't go quite how you anticipated it. The kids are getting hinge questions wrong and so on and so forth. Is, there, is it then a case that after that lesson you're adapting that PowerPoint? How does that work in terms of being responsive from lesson to lesson? So there's a couple of things there. Um, if I stick to the ones that I'm making at the moment as an example, I am deliberately putting in places uh, links to sets of questions. Um, so for instance, um, you can generate endless questions on uh, simplifying expressions from Johnny Hall's MathSpot. So there's a link somewhere to these and I know that if I need my pupils to be able to practice this a bit more, I can do that. Um, and there's links to, the, or to these kinds of things throughout. Um, so the point when I when I said before that I, I go through the PowerPoint, that was a really bad choice of phrase there because that's exactly not what's happening. Because what I'm doing is um, asking questions as I go along and then responding to them. And of course, I have the benefit of lots of experience. So I know that if my pupils are stuck, I can generally figure out what to do on the fly. Um, the reason I've made these so long is because I know that some of some teachers will not have that level of experience yet. So I want them to have plenty of um, stuff and plenty of activities there for them to do. Um, if, if they're not able to make it up as they go along. That makes perfect sense. So, yeah, I was going to say, so I would say that I think by having it so well planned and so well structured, I'm better able to respond because I've got time to think about those things instead. Got it, got it. And um, my other question is, often lessons have kind of key features in there. So a do now would be a classic. A lot of teachers would always start their lesson either with retrieval questions with the last lesson last week or whatever it may be and so on. Um, how does that fit into your model if you essentially don't really know or, or care all that much where one lesson starts and one lesson ends? How does that work? Well, that's one of those things you then have to do as you're going along. So wherever you've got to um, at the end of a particular period, if your school says you must start every lesson with this kind of retrieval do now starter, you make sure that you put the relevant kinds of questions into that. It might be that you want to practice something that they, they just need a bit more practice on because you've identified it from hinge questions that you've used previously. Or it might be something that you know is going to help with what's coming up that you just want to refresh their minds on. But that's where you have to, I think, you shouldn't be planning a long time in advance because that's the that's all to do with responding. If you want it to be effective, it needs to be reactive to what's actually happening in the classroom. I see. So there's opportunities, although you've got your kind of general overview all play, lined, out, lined out, there's that expectation that you're going to be slotting in things as and when, when appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely not, here is, you know, the next two weeks worth of work. This is absolutely everything you will need because that's kind of the opposite of what I want to achieve in the classroom. But what it is, is here's the, um, here's kind of the majority of what you're going to need. Use this as your starting point and make it work really well for the people you've got in front of you. Got it. Right. Let, let me put you in the shoes of um, a novice teacher who doesn't have Gemma Sherwood planning out this incredible outline of a lesson and so on and so forth. But they want to do this. They want to break the cycle that perhaps me and you have, have been in where they're planning lesson by lesson and so on and so forth. So let's say it's a Sunday evening or whatever. They sit down. They know they've got a two week unit on fractions to teach or whatever. And this could be non-maths. It could be any subject. Any advice on, on how they start? Because it's quite overwhelming, isn't it? Thinking, oh my gosh, I've, I've five lessons, six 
lessons or whatever material. Where would a novice teacher start with this, Gemma, do you think? So there's two scenarios I can think of. First of all, if you've got somebody in your department who you think you could talk to, who is more experienced and who you know would be willing to kind of get involved in such a project, definitely do it. Go and pick their brains um, and, and get their help on it. If you don't have anybody like that, I think I would probably start by working um, with my first lesson and then adapting to it and putting these resources together as I go along into one long thing and at the very end of it stop and look back and reflect and go how well did that work how well did the first bit work related to the second was there something I could have done between those lessons that would have helped though that little group of pupils over there that didn't get this thing um, but it's about the reflection because with the reflection then comes the fact that you can adapt it and make it better ready for next time but because you've then got the initial sequence and you reflected on it so then next time you teach it you can just iterate it and improve it a bit more Got it. Final question on this, Gemma, unless there's anything you want to add. It's a little bit of a bonus question, going off on a bit of a tangent here. Whilst we're talking about do nows, where do you stand on that? Are you, if you were midway through some fluency practice or something like that and the bell went, would you start the next lesson just cracking on with that fluency practice or do you have a definite kind of starting point to your lesson, whether it's a do now or, or something else? I think that's hugely dependent on the context in the school. So, it may be that you're in a school where you need, maybe the pupils have come from PE and they've come a long way and they need something just to settle them. And you know that this kind of routine works really well because they know what's expected of them then. Great, then, then do it. If you know that they're just going to come and they're going to crack on with whatever you ask them to do, I don't see the need to necessarily do something like that at the start of every lesson. But I'm going to kind of totally pull back by and be non-committal there and say it really does depend on context. But I don't think that they should be done like as a kind of a blanket rule at the start of every lesson. So my first tip, um, do less but better. And so concretely, I'd say, cut whatever you're planning to do in, in half. Um, and this idea originally came from, I was doing a little talk to, to some really small group of teachers um, about responsive teaching in my book. And, and one of them said, well, look, I'm an NQT. Um, what is your, what's one practical thing that I should do tomorrow, today? And I was like, look, take a look at your lesson plan. Look, it's never all gonna stick. There's loads of stuff in there. Just like cut half of the things, half the activities, and then pick, a few things that are really valuable, important, and spend more time on them. And and so instead of saying we're doing seven different activities, it's going to be six minutes. I'm going to have to pre prepare each one. We say like I'm going to get one text, one problem, one thing, and we're going to spend longer on it. But I'm going to think hard about okay, how will I introduce it? How will I revisit it? What will students do with it? So hopefully it will be easier on me, and I'll kind of get more bang for my buck, more more thinking out of it. Um, and then for the, the for, so fractal part, you could do that for, for a lesson, but you could also do that for a school improvement plan. You could do it for a professional development session. Just pick the one or two things that are really important and do them really well. And no one's going to do like your 27 things on your school improvement plan. So you might as well not even bother. Just just make it two. 
this is lovely, this Harry. So if we dive into the, the lesson aspect of this, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this because it's your classic kind of novice teacher and even experienced teacher mistakes in it, over planning. Like it happens all the time, particularly if you're being observed, you never fit everything in. And then you've got that awful dilemma of do you just try and whiz through it to try and get through to the really good stuff that you've planned, you've spent ages planning it, or do you think, no, actually, I'm going to slow down? And, and, and it, it, it always ends up being a compromise that, that kind of satisfies nobody. Um, and I, what I also like about this, it reminds me of your classic kind of 80-20 um, rule where, you know, 20% of your stuff is going to deliver 80% of the results. So focus on that. Um, how does it work practically? So what, what kind of things do you often find teachers can cut out from their lessons that, that, that aren't needed? Are there any certain activities or parts of a lesson that, that can normally go? So, so yeah, in some ways, starting with the cutting is unhelpful because actually the start point is like, what is the key thing yes. that you want students to understand? What like what are they going to take away? How are you going to know if they've got it? What are the big misconceptions they might um, uh, they might suffer? I guess is the word. Um, and so, so that that ideally that cutting would be done around that. I mean, I guess I think there's probably a case that. Um, if you come back to the sort of Kirshner thing of, of, you know, you want cognitive activity and not activity activity, or not that activity activity is bad, but often it's like, oh, how can I get them to do this? I'm going to need this. We're going to need colours. They're, they're going to be talking and so on. And like, where, of what will it make them think? Uh, to be now brought in Willingham and Kirshner and <laughs> nice. like five minutes in. Um, but but so saying, okay, well, like if, if we've got the key idea in the lesson, you probably only need like one or two activities that are going to be around it and you can maybe cut off a lot of the like we're going to do this we're going to do it and, and, and cut it down to like okay as a historian like here's a text we're going to read it we're going to discuss the different bits in it we might do a bit of writing about it like that we could get a lot out of this one text instead of what i might have done as a, as a a less experienced teacher which would be like i'm going to introduce the text and then there's going to be a different writing activity and then there's going to be a different thing well actually the text is probably quite hard so giving students the time and the chance to pull it apart and make sense of it is is going to be much more worthwhile it's a bit of a roundabout answer but hopefully it, it sort of answers your question oh it certainly does harry and just a bit of a follow-up to that um one thing i've been dabbling with in maths and i always wonder whether this transfers so i'm thinking you're the ideal person for me to to, to kind of test this test this out on here right so in maths, a mistake I used to make was I used to have loads of different types of activities that I'd wheel out for different topics. So it would be a certain topic when I'm a certain type of task when I'm doing Pythagoras and another one when I'm teaching quadratics and so on. What I'll try and do now is have more kind of a collection of high value activities. So this will hopefully fit into your idea of, of kind of, you know, less is more that um, one of them would be like a Venn diagram, the structure of, of a Venn diagram. I can use that structure to get kids thinking hard about fractions, Pythagoras, quadratics, graphs, and so on. And it may not lend itself as well as some of these more bespoke activities, but because we're focusing in on that structure, I get better as a teacher at using it, the kids get better as learners at using it, and it just feels like by, by reducing the number of types of things I'm doing with the kids over the course of a year, I f just get the feeling it, it's better for everybody. Do, does that, is that something that, well, first, does it fit into your tip? And does that transfer across to like a subject like history? 100%. And in as much as I definitely felt this terror that like, well, if I do the same thing I did with them two weeks ago, they'll be bored. Yeah, yeah, um, that's it. And actually, if you think about like every activity has... Uh, the, the content you want them to learn or the thing you want them to do and then the like 
the knowing how the activity works and the content is going to impose some cognitive load and knowing how the activity works is going to impose some cognitive load if the activity is new and the content's new yes. then you're making life harder for them so actually you know there's a sense in which if there were a single format for a lesson that you always did um now that that you know that potentially would would get dull for you or for that for them and th there's definitely value and variety and you want it to feel fresh and sometimes you want to surprise them and so on um but actually the real excitement is that history is really exciting maths is really exciting and the real excitement is about the content yes. not the box that you put it in so actually saying Every time that we look at a piece of evidence, every time that we try and understand the causes of an event, we're always going to approach it in certain ways is incredibly productive because we can then think much harder about the causes of the event. And as a historian, yes. that's the thing that I really want students to care about more than I do the fact that I've come up with a really cool debate structure that's going to help us get into it. Um, and yeah, so, so like it's efficient for you, it's efficient for them, just... just standardize and maybe you know like maybe it's five activities maybe it's 10 activities it doesn't have to be like just one but i, I think it helps everyone that's lovely that so if we if we kind of dial up from from the lesson level you mentioned kind of school improvement plans and things that i mean i've, I've never been in position thank god to after a write one of those they sound painful is it is it practical to be able to shelve half of half of those kind of things and other things outside of the classroom I mean, I've never been in a position to write one of them either. But I can, I, I can tell, you, tell you a couple of things. One is that so I spent five years working, doing a, a programme for heads of teaching and learning. So I was working with like your head of CPD. Um, and something that I quite consistently saw is that over the two year programme, they'd come in with a, like, here's the 20 things that we do in our CPD programme. And gradually they'd whittle it down. And they'd end up saying, like, here are the five things, but they're really hard. And achieving some kind of change is really difficult. And so we spend... Where previously it was like, oh, we'll do questioning in a lesson. Well, questioning is a half term because we need yes. to like talk about it, look at some evidence, try it out, come back to it. Um, so in that sense, it's like it's not just desirable; it's it's unavoidable. Um, the other anecdote: I, I was briefly a, a school governor, so I was in a position that you know wasn't writing the school improvement plans, <laughs> but I was commenting on them. And I remember saying to the the head teacher, who's brilliant head teacher. Um, there are too many things in this. You, you, it was like primary school. It's like, you know, we're going to rewrite the curriculum and this, this, this. And I'm like, this is not going to happen. Um, and she was like, yeah, yeah no, it would be fine. And I remember the next governor's meeting, she was like, in retrospect, Harry might have had a point <laughs> that like we, we have taken on too many things. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, you know, like it's, it's like the classic, are you trying to cover the curriculum or are you trying to make sure the students have learned it? And in the same way, if you want to say like, we've done something about these 20 items and it was a two minute item in staff briefing, you can tick them all off. It change, changing human beings and changing our practices is slow and hard. And if you want that to really happen, you're gonna have to make sure that you, you give it the time. And so you can't do 20 things at once. You can probably do two. It's fascinating this. Um, just one more thing I just wanted to raise on, on this tip and then I'll throw over to you just in case there's anything else. Um, I've just um, spoken on a previous Tips for Teachers uh, video with Gemma Sherwood, who's a, who's a maths teacher um, and oversees curriculum at almost an academy. Um, one of her tips was related to this, and it, but it to do with explanations. So essentially try and be, don't try and say too much when you're explaining things, be really kind of clear and concise. It feels to me that there's a similar thing going on here where it's quite, I often made the mistake with my explanations of just trying to keep talking, keep talking in the hope that what some of the words are going to hit the kids' heads at some point and make some kind of sense. But it's a similar thing, isn't it? You, you can kind of either cognitively overload them, overwhelm them with stuff, but it's quite, I find it quite hard to be really kind of concise, but it's, it's the key, I think, to a good explanation and a good lesson and a good school improvement plan. 
picking the kind of hard hitting things, the impactful things and focusing in on them. And the rest is kind of just noise that, that, that needs to go. D- d- does that make sense? So when I when I talk about models with teachers, I refer to one of my favourite findings about modelling, which which is that actually if you're showing students models or showing students models and giving them an explanation, giving an explanation depresses their performance wow. uh, subsequently. Um, and my my suggestion is that when we start explaining, we start using like big words like elegant or formal yeah. or this that and the other. Um, and, and actually, the, the model does its own work. And, you know, it makes me think of what you talk about in How I Wish I Taught Maths and say, well, actually, some of the best modelling is just silent modelling because yeah. it allows students to concentrate on what's really going on. So, yeah, the fewest fewest words possible, on which note I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> nice, but you've got a plug in for my book, Harry. That's bonus points there. That's brilliant stuff. I've got and... three more coming up, don't worry. <laughs> Amazing, Harry. Right. <laughs>